Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast with your hosts, Joe Alcock. And I'm Coffee Brown. And today's Valentine's Day, so if we if I'm uh, efficient at recording this and then editing it and putting it on the website, you may actually be able to hear this today on Valentine's Day. I got a card from my students today. They all signed it. And that is fantastic. Um, I got a text from my wife who is up in Denver doing a yoga retreat. Um, she should be back on the weekend, so we may be able to celebrate then. Nice. I got a text from my wife saying, candy or die. There you go. <laughs> Good times. Um, well, Coffee, uh, we talked a little bit about um, kind of reviewing some of the recent literature in evolutionary medicine, and uh, Fred Madsen, who's a listener of this podcast and a follower of my blog and uh, a very interesting scientist on the topic of nutrition, um, he, sa- he sent this my way. And the paper that, that we thought we'd look at it has to do with uh, intermittent fasting and sort of the opposite of that, which is overconsumption or overeating and its effects on the brain. Is Fred related to Mark Matson? No, wrote this paper? They, they, the spelling is different, and they are they are different people. Well, I want to say to both Fred and Mark, thank you, because I found this to be a super interesting paper. This is really really interesting stuff, isn't it? Yes. And so Mark Matson, uh, spelled M A T T S O N, he is a neuroscientist. I believe he's at John Hopkins University. Uh, he has a TED talk on the topic of intermittent fasting an area that he's, he's interested in. Um, but he, he published this, this paper that we're going to talk about. It's entitled, An Evolutionary Perspective on Why Food Overconsumption Impairs Cognition. And the idea here is that uh, we Westerners, or maybe just humans on this planet at this time in, time, uh, in history, uh, many of us have way too much access to food. We've got full refrigerators, we drive to work, we go past fast food joints. Uh, we, uh, at the break room, we have donuts. I'm, I'm speaking from experience here because I had donuts that were put in the break room last night. And in fact, I had two of them so that we overeat. So the idea is that, um, overeating might slow down our brains. So what do you think about that? Uh, Joe is not overweight, by the way. He's a quite an athletic frame. Um, but you can still, you can be not overweight and still overeat. Yes, that's true. Uh, 2012 was a landmark year, milestone year, because in that year, worldwide, obesity became a greater problem than uh, undernutrition. I remember that. I'm not going to say a greater problem than malnutrition, because in my opinion, obesity is a form of malnutrition. Okay, sure. Um, Calories in excess of nutrients and in excess of requirements. So this paper argues that we evolved to be less bright when we're well-fed or overfed than when we're underfed, that we're actually smarter critters when we're underfed. And it goes a little further than that, that it actually benefits us. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those details as we go. But there's an evolutionary benefit to intermittent fasting. Now, I've been aware of a lot of advocates for intermittent fasting for a while, and I myself used to do quite a lot of intermittent fasting before, before I was in intermittent fasting before intermittent fasting was cool. Much of this paper, so this paper has two basic premises. One is that we're smarter when we fast, and the other is that that's an evolutionary adaptation, and I would treat those separately. The smarter when we fast, he provides good phys- neurophysiologic evidence for 
Although there is he provides some evidence some, for it. I was going to say, yeah. but there's still a hefty chunk of inferential uh, case building here. Yeah, the that it's an evolutionary adaptation is very much an inferential case, and so I plan to sort of I'll use the word challenge this paper in the sense of floating alternative hypotheses for the same correlations for some of these. But I will tell you I'm intrigued enough that I'm probably going to start intermittent fasting again for a while and see how I like it. It's, uh, it's funny that you came I'm, to that uh, point yeah. of view. I think I, I did too after reading the paper. I have, yeah. I have my own criticisms of the argument, but some of the evidence is really compelling. And I'd like us to discuss the inferential case again that led me to stop doing this in the first place. Uh, back in the in medical school, oh. why I why I quit doing it because that case is also pretty compelling. Why you ought not to do intermittent fasting and that ketogenesis is not good for you. Sure. And so here we have two pretty credible inferential cases that make opposite points. Now, that sounds like a great podcast to me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's set the stage here and go through Mark Matson's argument. So he he starts off by saying that pointing out, as we did, that having access to three energy-rich meals per day and snacking in between and living a sedentary life is not good for us, and that that's something which is unusual in our evolutionary past. In fact, we don't even need to go back that far to uh, imagine that our, our current state of affairs really is very, very, very different. We can go back 50 years, and people were not nearly as sedentary, and people were not nearly as obese and people didn't have nearly the access to processed, refined foods that, that we do now. And in fact, look at any photograph from 50 years ago, or for that matter, 30 years ago, and people look different than they do now. You just don't see as many heavy people in the crowds. You know. And that, that's true. Even I was looking at some images from the 1970s, mm-hmm. and people were skinny in the 70s. Yeah, so I graduated high school in the 1970s. I was alive then. <laughs> there were very few, uh, very, very few obese people in high school. Uh, it was very noticeably different to look at high school photographs from the 70s and now. And it's easy for anybody to check by looking those up online. So I think for uh, Dr. Matson and for many other people, this is a, a paradox that needs to be explained. Why are people so different right now? So in your introduction, one of the comments you made was obesity and a sedentary lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And my point here is that a whole bunch of things have changed simultaneously. We look at electronic media much more. We, uh, we uh, get our information from the greatest pipeline of false information of all time, which is the Internet. Um, it's also the greatest pipeline of true information. Uh, we are much more sedentary and much of our physical work has been taken away from us. On the other hand, uh, this is widely and often referred to as an information economy or a knowledge economy. It's clear that critical think. well, one of the things I would say is he makes the case that we need our critical thinking to go find food. Right. And I would say, well, if anything, critical thinking is more important in the, in my opinion, more complex modern world that we live in than it was hunting for food. After all, earthworms find food, cows find food, dogs find food, everybody finds food. The the brightest animals and the dullest animals find food. So critical thinking is certainly helpful for finding food, but it's not a sine qua non. So he does 
uh, bring in some animal data. He talks about corvids, so ravens, mm-hmm. and makes the case that uh, if you're, even though they are bird-brained, a big chunk of their cognition and neural circuitry is involved with remembering where food is, figuring out how to find food, uh, and how to uh, um, how to store and acquire and even and, and have caching behaviors. They would hide food in various places. So he makes the arguments that a big chunk of the brain of corvids, and he makes the same argument for rodents, and by inference, us too, uh, has evolved to, uh, for the purpose of finding food and, um, and supplying our energy needs. But clearly an important evolutionary driver, but sort of things like reproduction, avoiding predation, uh, and... Um Separately from reproduction, mate finding, by which I mean navigating the complex social pathways of social animals. Yeah, uh, so if you're so, a social animal as opposed to a solitary animal, right. so say human as opposed to an orangutan, which is more solitary, much of our brain architecture and neurocircuitry is involved in negotiating those, those social arrangements. He hints at this, and I've often suspected that a big driver for the development of the kind of brain that we have. I'm not going to say the superior brain because we might be extinct this century, but the kind of brain that we have is the Byzantine social relationships that we have. And in my opinion, the most likely, the most challenging cognitive task that our evolutionary ancestors had was each other. I I agree with you. On the other hand, there are other animals that live social, socially complicated lives. We can think of honeybees or ants or even dogs. So hide little... animals and herd animals, I wouldn't mm-hmm. lump under social animals. Okay. How about uh, wolf packs and wolves? Now, there you have social animals. Clearly, other primates are social animals, many right. of them, not all of them. Um, parrots might be, and ravens certainly are. So if we were to get back to this, this guy's argument, he's saying that... Uh, animals' brains, and even, even the social component of brains, has to do with acquiring food, and the pack behavior of wolves, uh, by and large, a, a big chunk of what they are engaged in is uh, tracking down prey. I'll just quote what he says here. He talks about tool-making in humans and how that is involved in, of course, acquiring food. Um, but he says, in summary, there's ample evidence that the need to acquire food had a major role in the evolution of the cognitive repertoire of many species, including the superior creativity and decision-making capabilities of humans. But to your point, plenty of animals don't have those and are still able to get food. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's obviously true. Uh, So true that except that you don't want to let things fall through the cracks, it didn't really need to be said here. Mm -hmm. Whenever people say, this is too obvious to say, and then they finish the sentence, uh, this kind of fits that description. Um, So yeah, totally I agree with that. I just think that it's... uh, by way of analogy, Nietzsche says everything we do can be explained in terms of the search for power. Freud says everything we do can be explained in terms of sex. Uh, Victor Markle says that everything we do can be explained in terms of search for purpose. And um, um, I'll say it in a minute. Um, pragmatism isn't exactly the word I want, but I'm forgetting the right word right now. Deontism says that everything we do can be explained in terms of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. All of those are consistent with the facts. In mm-hmm. my opinion, all of those descriptions are simultaneously true. And although any one of them can explain everything, it's not true that any one of them is the explanation for everything. What happened to Occam's razor? 
Well, Occam's razor is not a rule. It's a strategy. It is itself a heuristic. It says don't multiply complexities. So yeah, totally, finding food is a driver for cognitive function, but all these other things are as well. Okay. So the other piece of information that is brought to bear in this argument is that domesticated animals uh, lose, who have ample food and are fed by another creature, oftentimes us humans, when we domesticate animals like cattle or even dogs and cats, that they become dumber as compared to their wild cousins. Okay, so can you do algebra? Maybe, uh, I sure hope so. How often do you do algebra when you don't have a problem to solve? Never. Are you less capable of algebra when you're not taking a math test or less motivated to do algebra when you're not taking a math test? So are you arguing from the use it or lose it perspective? No, I'm arguing that people don't seek food when they have just eaten. Right. Uh, that is, they don't do challenging tasks when their needs are satisfied. But the implication that they can't do challenging tasks because their needs have been satisfied is one of the areas I stumbled a little on. Although I will say, when he gets into the neurophysiology, he actually shows some mechanisms by which this could be explained. But the other thing is, he's also going to make the case that this is an evolutionary strategy for conserving energy. And that is what I meant when I said a big chunk of this case is inferential. Sure. But to the idea that a domesticated animal simply doesn't need to use its superior cognitive skills because they're being provided food, there is some evidence that the brains of domesticated animals are actually smaller. Uh-huh. And one, one, thing, one yeah. thing that I didn't know about, and this was new to me after reading the paper, he says uh, that the cranial volumes of humans have undergone a 10% reduction in the last 10,000 years. So this would be after the agricultural revolution. I'm going to have to defer to him on this, but so I want to take those two points. And of course, I, I looked it up. I looked up the paper, and it looks legit. Well, we were Cro-Magnon ten thousand years ago, right? Yeah, but we're you bigger wouldn't... than we are now. Uh, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, Maybe. you have to visualize. If you think about what we think mm -hmm. of as primitive humans, many of whom were like mm -hmm. five foot three or so, mm -hmm. if they had a bigger head than you and they were five foot three, they'd look like bobbleheads on a car dashboard. But they did, apparently they did have actual bigger cranial volumes than we have now. Neanderthal did, and so did Cro-Magnon. But these Neanderthal are, these are, had... It, these are human... I realize these were only 10,000 years ago, but yeah. here's my point. Neanderthals had that larger brain volume largely in the occipital lobe, so they presumably had better visual processing than we do, which intrigues me. Would be an interesting talk in its own right. What might that mean? And Cro-Magnon was a little taller than modern man is on average, although we're just now catching up with him again. We know that brain size is a function of body size, but for example, men's brains are significantly heavier than women's brains, about 15% heavier, but there's no evidence that men are actually smarter than women, and women would argue the converse. Right. So would high college graduation and completion rates, by the yeah. way. True. So, of course, you can't... This is one line of evidence. And note that the birds' brains had more mm -hmm. neurons than we do, and like 100 bird brains would fit inside of your skull. Yeah. So size isn't everything when it comes to uh, right. brains. Size isn't everything, as we so often uh -huh. our, console ourselves. <laughs> so then, then he gets into uh, obesity and talking about how obese people tend to have worse cognitive skills, which is a bit of a controversial thing just in and of itself. Nope. Several studies have supported this. Yeah. But imagine that you had, say, Down syndrome, now, not all people with Down syndrome have low IQs, but let's talk about the classic low IQ profile of Down syndrome mm -hmm. or some other uh, developmental disorder, okay? 
you likely would have less restraint when it came to food. And you would have caretakers who likely would reward you with food or charm you with food or do other things like that. And you likely aren't a high performer who's going to be, you know, dieting and, and nutrition conscious and things like that. So I would argue that lower IQ people probably do tend to be heavier. And therefore, if you look at all the heavier people, the disproportionate number of lower IQ people in there would make that cohort look heavier. But does getting heavier make you lower IQ? So that's what he's arguing. I know it is. I know yeah. it is. And he does actually, again, he gives some credible uh, neurophysiologic mechanisms, which we're probably going to have to talk about in a few minutes here. But we know plenty of high IQ heavy people. Sure. Now, would it be that they'd be even higher IQ if they weren't heavy? Do people Now, some people have gotten heavy, say, in the second half of their life. Do they get less bright? in the second half of their left life, less cognitively agile. But of course there's aging and there's brain shrinkage and there's a bunch of other things mm -hmm. that happen uh, as you proceed through the time mm -hmm. course of one's mm -hmm. life and you couldn't ascribe all of that to just being overweight. If you plotted a curve of weight against IQ, it would show us uh, this strong negative correlation. But I'm uncomfortable with inferring that it's cause and effect because there are so many other ways to describe that correlation. I'm with you too. Um, so, and in fact, the, the, those studies have not been done. You can't do a randomized control trial of making, intentionally making somebody overweight and then check, checking their cog cognitive skills uh, on a, in a randomized fashion. But of course, you can do that with rodents. So what Mattson argues is that these associations that we do observe in people, um, have that, that those have been tested experimentally in rodents. <clears throat> and he says that uh, mice genetically engineered to eat excessively um, exhibited a bunch of brain defects, including impaired hippocampus-related spatial learning. Of course, the hippocampus is important in uh, memory and learning in general. And so these animals had, had impairments. Was that because of the gene defect or was that because of the eating? Uh, it's not 100% clear. But there was, you know, he, he, he talks in fairly substantial detail about the uh, neurocognitive deficits in these overeating rodents. Well, we're conflating two things, a number of things, that actually track together so they're easy to conflate. Mm -hmm. So overeating and obesity are not exactly the same thing. One is a behavior and represents, uh, can represent transient things, such as how, how stupid we get prosprandially on Thanksgiving, especially mm -hmm. after the uh, uh, tryptophan from the turkey, right? Yeah. So listen, I, just to jump in As there. As a vegetarian, by the way, I don't get that. I, I do eat the tryptophan, and I can attest that this seems to be a, a real thing. It turns out that turkey isn't a, a particularly a huge source of tryptophan. There are other meats and other uh, cheeses that have a lot of tryptophan also. Right, right. But I think everybody can... can... So you can overeat periodically uh -huh. and not be obese. Right. Uh, and apparently, there are people who can be obese but aren't, by classical definitions, overeating, apparently because their metabolisms have ramped down uh, when they try to diet and so forth. Uh, or, for example, you could take a heavy person and fast them for a little while. Uh, they wouldn't become svelte, but would they become smarter during that period of fasting? Well, that's what Matson is arguing would happen. He's saying that, 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 that we should see that. And he mentions that that test is going on right now with 50 to 70-year-olds, so I'm really interested in that. Waiting for the other shoe to it drop. It should on work. That one. It should work at any age group. It shouldn't work just for seven. Right. No, I'm just saying. But that's what yeah. he was describing. And he says there's a paper now that's mm -hmm. not not ready for results yet. 
uh, and this is the group they're working with. But I think this is, I don't want, I don't want to get into my criticism too much here, but I think this is one of my uh, criticisms of this paper, uh-huh. is that he is more or less describing you know, excess energy consumption as a pathology. Yes. And that food deprivation and fasting is normal and good. And it's associated with, it, he says, intensified cognition. Uh-huh. And a bunch of good things happening at the mitochondrial level, at DNA repair, at reduced inflammation. So he's saying that's the healthy state. And he's arguing that the food abundance and overeating is the unhealthy state. To me, that was the most interesting part of the paper. I'm reading this thing going, well, let's say he's right. Let's say fasting sharpens you up because now you've really got to go get some food. So your brain goes on super smart mode. Yeah. But does it create wear and tear that ages your brain faster? And he actually makes the case that it prolongs the lifespan of your right neurons. He says the overeating and the inflammation that accompanies it, that causes vulnerability to an injury and disease also because of your suboptimal cognition. So really he's, he's laying out this as here's a healthy state which involves fasting, here's an unhealthy state which involves overeating. And that I th- goes along with our, maybe the layperson's view of you know, all the health problems that go along with uh, overeating and obesity. So the, so I'm transitioning for a moment to the evolutionary argument that we are evolved to get dumber when we overeat. That that's actually an adaptation and not Does just he say a that side in the paper? effect of pathology. That was that? how I understood his thesis. Well, that's how I understand it, too, but he doesn't uh, actually come out and say it. Uh, He's making what is, I think, more traditionally thought of as a gene-environment mismatch argument, that we evolved, our genes evolved, in a context of food deprivation and scarcity. And the modern environment is something novel and new, and our genes simply can't cope well with it, and so we get all of these problems involving inflammation, mitochondrial dysregulation, cognitive impairment, etc. And I'll just read one little piece of what he says here. And this is about the intermittent fasting. He says, the typical eating pattern in modern societies of three meals plus snacks every day belies the fact that humans have adapted over millions of years of evolutionary history to sporadic eating patterns. And he argues that these evolutionary pressures would have resulted in selection for cognitive capabilities that were heightened in the food-deprived state. Now, I have read about not one but several recent studies. Uh, and when I say read about, I mean read mention of them elsewhere. I didn't read the original studies, so I want to make that caveat. Yeah. That uh, indicate that we aren't eating more calories than our ancestors were, and our BMI isn't particularly different than our ancestors were. So... And when you look at uh, primitive tribes nowadays, they're pretty much grazing all day long, same as we do. So I'm not sure that we should as, that we should suppose... Well, clearly periods of intermittent uh, uh, deprivation did occur in our ancestors' past, but that would be like years when there was a drought or something. The idea that we were intermittently fasting on a regular basis, that there were large portions of each day or each week when we weren't getting enough calories... It's not my understanding that the anthropologic evidence supports that. And you're right. So that made me think of this paper by Herman Ponser, who's a... Yeah, yeah, this is the one I was thinking of, actually. Yes. One of the ones I was thinking of. This was of. written up in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. We'll put this this and the other paper in the show notes. But this paper was called Hunter-Gatherer Energetics and Human Obesity, and it looked at just that. So the idea that we're talking about here is that we're overeating, we're overconsuming calories way in excess of our metabolic needs, and that's what's causing us to become fat and soft. 
But Herman Ponser went out and looked at a group of hunter-gatherers. These are the Hadza in Tanzania, if I remember correctly, and measured their metabolic rates and showed that they were the same as us. In other words, their, their energy expenditure is the same as ours. And here's so another that, anecdotal that, that piece That belies this idea that, that, yeah. that our modern environment and, and metabolism is completely different. When you look at um, pictures in old National Geographics of tribesmen from various parts of the world, mm -hmm. um, very often, and the reason I mention National Geographic is that's where you see a lot of people with their shirts off, and they look like we did until recently with our shirts off. Now, this generation is quite conspicuously heavier than anything we've seen in the past, but, for example, the way middle-aged people would have looked when I was in high school was about the same in America as it was in Africa or Australian Aborigines or other groups where you can see their physiques and they live a Stone Age lifestyle. So despite having a similar metabolism and metabolic rate, we are markedly more sedentary than Hadza, from what I understand, in terms of our... our, our they do a lot exercise. of sitting around. They do some, but I think the average hunter-gatherer or hunter horticulturalists walks something on the order of uh, seven to ten kilometers a day, and we, we do far fewer than that on average. So probably that I, I would buy that. On the other hand, this is interesting. I never heard it talked about this way. So brace yourselves for a healthy dose of skepticism here. But think, consider this: your brain is about two percent of your body weight, maybe five percent, two percent, I think. But it uses twenty percent of your calories. And it is quite clear that modern man does far more brain work than our ancestors did. So you might argue we should actually, although we walk less, remember we're still burning the same number of calories. We may have transferred that burning function from our legs to our head. Now, absolutely, walking has many, many proven health benefits that we are not getting mm -hmm. when we do that. You don't get the health benefits of walking by playing chess. That's crystal clear. Yeah, so that what you're... Describing, here's a scientific American paper. That, that, yeah, just thinking really hard, yeah. burn more. Nicely done, by the way, pulling it up that fast. Does thinking really, really hard really burn more calories? <clears throat> Maybe. I haven't read the paper. <laughs> we'll have to put this in the well show, done. Notes, show notes, too. Well done. This is in Scientific American. This is in 2012. Um, but, yeah, the brain does require much more power. Definitely punches above its weight in terms of its energetic needs. In fact, it has relatively fixed metabolic needs. And so we, when, when our body... Uh, is confronted with various challenges, we do actually, one of the reasons we make ketones and, and ketogenesis is that our bodies can subsist on ketones. Well, and so and now brains, the, I mean, the inferential brain. case that led me away from intermittent fasting back when I liked it, mm -hmm. and I think I may again now actually, yeah. is the ketogenesis. Our brains need glucose. Our heart wants glucose. It really doesn't like using uh, fats for an energy source, but our brain needs glucose. And that was... Uh, and also, uh, ketogenic diets, ketones are the smog that comes from bad burning. They're, they're like the London fog from burning a bunch of coal and from wood fires. Well, that's not, that's not the argument that he makes here. No, it's not. But that is how we've classically understood it. Uh, mm -hmm. Ketones are uh, acidogenic. Um, they are a byproduct that, until this paper, we have assumed was not good for our bodies. We outgassed it from our lungs, for example. Right. And so, and they clearly, we get less uh, energy from the same calories. Uh, how can I say this? Burning fat is less efficient than burning glucose is. The benefit of fat is that we can store it, but 
we use our carbohydrates ultimately less efficiently when we burn fat than when we get them as carbohydrates. Okay, and that's, that is part of the argument here for intermittent fasting. The idea <clears throat> is that the ketogenesis uh, improves cognition in a whole bunch of different ways involving, do you remember any of the, any of the uh, um, mechanisms they talked about? It got down into a lot of neurophysiology, but the main one is brain. that by multiple pathways, it yeah. releases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF for short. So that's, that's the argument. Rolls right off the tongue. It does not. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but Matson and others make the argument that having inducing a bit of ketogenesis here and there, intermittently fasting, reducing our energy output, does good things for our brain. It increases this BDNF. It decreases some of the inflammation that's associated with obesity and the mitochondrial dysfunction supposedly that happens along with that. So again, I'm just trying to explain his argument. Um, but he argues that uh, intermittent fasting enhances neuroplasticity. It enhances cognition by signals that come from the body as well as signals that are activated in the brain, in the brain, brain signaling pathways. And he lays out the case for this. So that's all, that's all uh, you know, well and good. Well, he actually lays out a good case. It's really cogent. It's really easy to understand. And it really involves uh, some good specifics. Um, it doesn't shock me that things can be counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to me that it would work this way. But lots of counterintuitive things happen in medicine, so I can roll with that. Right. But the main reason why I'm working hard to throw up counter-arguments here is that I believe that extraordinary claims uh, require extraordinary proof. This is not so much extraordinary as counterintuitive, and so the burden of proof is a little bit higher than if it were something we expected to be true. But it sounds like both of us kind of like this idea of intermittent fasting. I kind of do. I kind of do too. And there's, beyond this paper, there are others that suggest that reducing one's calories intermittently might be good for us. And I think that evidence is pretty compelling. So here's another one. I will this point was, out that his arguments, by the way, are very different than the ones that the bodybuilders and the diet gurus are putting forward, which is that intermittent fasting causes you to burn fat more um, readily. Right. So back to yeah. So this is another paper that when I was just going through my email, I, I someone had sent this one to me. Um, this is Alex May who sent this to me. Uh, a paper titled Intermittent Fasting Prom Promotes White Adipose Browning. So this is white adipose mm -hmm. fat tissue browning and decreases obesity by shaping the gut microbiota. So it puts the gut microbiota front and center. I, I thought you might of, go there, and I was waiting I, to hear what you had to say. I had to go there, right? So this is a paper yeah. in cell metabolism. It's by Lee and colleagues, published in October 2017. And one of the things that they talk about in this paper is that by fasting, your gut microbiota changes its metabolism, and it produces acetate and lactate, that go into your bloodstream and it changes the composition of your fat cells. It makes them go from white fat cells to beige fat cells. Now, this is kind of cool stuff. Do you want to explain that to people who may not be familiar with the white fat, brown fat thing? I don't know if I can explain it very well, but having lots of white adipose tissue tends to be bad for you. It tends to be more uh, pro-inflammatory and the adipose tissue, are, when there's lots of white adipose tissue, particularly around your, your viscera, it's associated with worse health outcomes. Brown fat has been involved in thermogenesis. Brown fat keeps you warm when, it, when it's cold and is less likely to cause inflammation. Then you may want to say some more things about, about it than that. Uh, this the is... earliest study that I'm specifically aware of had to, was done in the 70s, 
and they had some young Canadian males sleep on cots with a thin cotton sheet on them yep. for a couple of weeks. And at first, the poor guys were freezing and miserable and couldn't get any sleep at night. Mm -hmm. But then they got pretty comfortable, and they could sleep well at night. And when they brought them back inside at the end of the experiment, these guys hated it because <laughs> they were just overcooked in a normal house. And so they saw that their is, fat, is which they had sampled ahead of time as white, yeah. became this brown-colored fat. Brown-colored fat is very metabolically active. You put it on quickly, and you take it off quickly. Whether that's a path to getting a svelte body is unclear because you put it on quickly and take it off quickly. The real benefit of it seems to be the thermogenesis. Yep. Um, so... Non-shivering thermogenesis. Non-shivering thermogenesis. It keeps you warm right. without shivering. And which is kind of cool to me because I'm not a very cold-tolerant person. And so this has always kind of excited me, but I'm not willing to sleep outside for <laughs> two weeks in the freezing cold. Understood. Yeah. Okay. So there's beyond this paper, there are other lines of evidence that, that support the idea of intermittent fasting. It may not be a purely neurocognitive thing, as Mattson describes, there could be some events happening at the level well, of the gut microbiota. Well, here's another Multiple studies have confirmed that if you get about 30% less than the required than the uh, recommended number of calories, and you live at about 60 degrees all the time, you live longer. Mm -hmm. What's, well, I sh I'll take that back. You age more slowly is what I should have said. The animals that they do this to, and this applies across a wide range of phyla, so it's not like just mammals even. Um, these animals live longer sorry, age more slowly. The reason I keep correcting they myself they is that too. they don't live longer. <laughs> they don't, huh? Their average lifespan is similar, and it's thought to be because uh, in this semi-starved state, they're less able to fend off disease and uh, predators and sexual competitors, yeah. and so they get beat up and die, they get mugged by other critters, or they just they get illnesses from bugs and stuff. Yeah. So they're frailer from some of the metabolic things that kill us, but that they age more the, slowly and they lose their telomeres more slowly. caloric restriction idea. Caloric restriction and cold, being yeah. cold. So one interesting thing about this intermittent fasting, the people that are the proponents of this idea say that you can eat the same number of calories, you just can pack them into different time frames, and it protects you from becoming obese. What we used to believe, and so here's another inferential argument that changed my prior pattern. Mm -hmm. What we used to believe was that... Um, Eating one meal a day, which is how I used to live, was bad because uh, you would get this big spike in calories and so you'd store them as fat because you couldn't burn them all in, in the amount of time that they were in your gut, as it were. So you had to put them somewhere. And that actually does still make sense to me. I'm very sensitive to the theme of glucose spikes. The glycemic index is a model that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Although, like everything else in nutrition, it's controversial, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And so um, the idea of, say, fasting 16 hours a day and eating only during the other eight, a way of concentrating your calories, and some people take it as far as what I used to do, which is one meal a day, that would seem to argue that much of the time you're ketogenic, which your brain isn't going to like, and that you're storing fats in order to be ketogenic, which your um, bathing suit isn't going to like. And so um, it struck me You have to have the fats to have the ketones. Right. Yeah. So it struck me as a good idea not to concentrate all your calories in time. This is arguing for the opposite strategy. And so now I have two pretty good stories that lead to opposite conclusions. Ah, confusion. <laughs> Which is more the rule than the exception in medicine. <laughs> sure. Well, I want to, that's really interesting, Coffee. I want to leap into kind of some of my criticisms of this paper. Okay. 
And but first off, I want to congratulate uh, Mark Matson. The fact that we're talking about the paper, the fact that he has introduced this evolutionary concept in a otherwise not particularly evolutionary journal, uh, Cell. Concur. Uh, he, he it, I think he accomplished his goal. <laughs> it's a nice paper. Right? I really it's like a, it. It's and a in nice fact, paper. I'm finding myself moved by it. I'm not moved by the argument, and I'll, okay, I'll tell, tell you why. Because what what he's basically saying is that he's saying it's adaptive to be smarter when food is scarce or when you're eating less, and that you can kind of do a little life hack and accomplish the same thing by intermittently fasting and ramping up those co- those neurocognitive pathways and making yourself smarter. Um, but he starts off where, where I thought he was going to go with this when I first read the paper. I thought he was going to argue that the whole regulatory scheme is adaptive. In other words, it's it, like you said, it'd be adaptive to be smarter when food is scarce, and it'd be adaptive to be dumber when food is abundant. Because you can use, you know, you don't need to be... Theoretically, risk- something along the lines of energy conservation. Yeah. Why, why would I do smart stuff if I don't have to? Yeah. I'll just sit around. So both of those things would be adaptive and normal and part of a normal evolved physiologic response if we were to buy that argument. But then he goes all along and, and doesn't make that argument. He basically says that being food deprived is the healthy state and being food overloaded is the unhealthy state. Mm-hmm. So in other words, one is adaptive and one is maladaptive. But like I said, I kind of like his original idea. I think there might be something to it. It'd be nice if there was some evidence that would, that would back that up. And if that were true, you should be able to, to and you and me, food deprive us and then show that we're smarter and then give us a little extra food and show that we're dumber. And ideally, we would show that that energy that's not going to cognition is going to other beneficial functions in the body. I think for that experiment, you'd want to really motivate us to be smart when we're well-fed. In other yeah. words, we well, take can, the MCAT twice, they can once do, when we're starved and once when we're well-fed. They fed. do exactly these kinds of studies. Um, so, yeah, so he wrote, I think, I think this is a, a, a quote from the paper, or maybe it's one of my notes, but controlled trials aimed at determining whether intermittent fasting improves cognition in humans have not yet been reported. Right. And I followed that by. And that is in the paper. <clears throat> a bunch of exclamation points. I'm like, why not? Why haven't we, have, why haven't we seen this? And then he also, he has some language in there that I found just not all that, all that scientific. He wrote that cells, tissues, and organs become, quote, complacent, unquote, when they are not subjected to intermittent metabolic challenges. My liver is feeling complacent right now. <laughs> I'm feeling kind of but complacent. But my spleen's having some anxiety. <laughs> so what, when I wrote this paper, the note I wrote was, if it's adaptive to increase your memory and cognitive abilities when you're nutritionally challenged, it should also be adaptive to reduce your memory and cognitive abilities when you're nutritionally safe. It's two sides of the same coin. I think that was the inference I was referring to earlier. But it's not there. Yeah. It doesn't, he doesn't lay it out in his argument. It simply isn't there. It felt he, implied to me, but he doesn't say it explicitly. So it should be the lack of cognitive plasticity, he says, is organ function is impaired and disease processes are enabled. So he's making an argument of not adaptive regulation. He's making an argument of this is healthy and this is pathology, which is kind of a traditional medical way of looking at things as opposed to an evolutionary perspective, which you laid out, which is that it's adaptive in both directions. Mm. Both are part of the healthy state. And, but that's not, that's not the argument that he's making. And also, so I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a kind of what I'm getting at. So it's adaptive for us if we run up a flight of stairs or climb in the Sandia Mountains for our heart rate to go up above 100, 120. It's normal. In mm-hmm. fact, those data exist. We can, you know, we exercise people and people's heart rate goes up. It's also adaptive that your heart rate goes down when you're at rest. So it's adaptive in both directions. It would be unhealthy if your heart rate stayed elevated. We're not saying that it's unhealthy 
to have a heart rate of 60 when we're at rest. We don't argue that. It's normal. It's healthy. And, but in other words, the regulation is adaptive and beneficial and good for us in both directions. That's not the argument that he's making here. And beyond that, uh, there's no good evidence to really back up his thesis. We can't, as I mentioned, those tests have not been done. We can't show that people are smarter when we, when we fast them. He has some evidence that involves weight loss. So you're kind of conflating the intermittent fasting and the weight loss here in obese elderly people. Right. He's conflating excess calories with obesity. Right. But obesity itself causes a lot of problems exactly. that may impair brain function. Um, he also in, in conflates exercise with intermittent fasting. Some of his best yes. evidence, evidence for, for improved IQ had to do with exercise, not with fasting. Which has been known since ancient Greece. And he conveniently left out some data in children. The whole school lunch program is, is predicated on the idea that feeding kids allows them, kind of gives them the cognitive space to focus on their learning and their lessons as opposed to focusing on where their food's coming from. Well, one place we might go with this is my mantra, too much is too much, too little is too little, just right is just right. So probably there is some number of excess calories that's consequential because of obesity and some number of insufficient calories that's consequential because of poor brain development or distraction. So that, I, think that, I think that you're right. So an idea would be that within a certain range, we can expect some adaptive plasticity, which is beneficial mm-hmm. in both directions. So for your heart, as I mentioned, at rest, we can imagine that being 55 or 60 beats per minute is healthy. And when we exercise, you know, getting it up to 180, maybe, I don't know if mine will actually go that fast. Um, but if you're a young person, uh, that would be the normal range of adaptive plasticity. Um, but having a heart rate of 300 is probably not good for you no matter what. Right. And having a heart rate of 15, equally bad. So just right is just right. There's going to mm-hmm. be some range in which um, we're talking about things being normal. But I thought that it was convenient on the part of the author to leave out some of the research that looked at at giving children extra nutrition in school. And that literature suggests that if you give people more food, they do better in school. It's the opposite of fasting. So you can't have it both ways. You can't argue this is a um, across-the-board evolved trait that explains corvid behavior and rodents and people uh, uh, if you leave out the, the area where Um, where this is probably the most salient, which has to do with childhood development. Excellent point. And uh, I agree with you. Um, I found the inferential parts of the paper easier to debate. The neurophysiology, which I confess he knows a hell of a lot more about than I do, um, I liked that. And when I say I thought he made some good cases, that's where I thought he he was at his best. But the um, inferences he makes... So one of another of my mantras, I have lots of them, is mm-hmm. that the limits of our imagination are not the limits of the universe. So when somebody says, here is my inferential case for something, the very first thing I do is just a reflex anymore. Well, what other explanation can I come up with for the same correlation? And here I did not have trouble coming up with other explanations for the correlations that were discussed. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm suggesting that he kind of is making two arguments here. He's yes. making the argument for this adaptive regulation of cognition that makes sense in evolutionary context. But he's also making the argument that it simply is unhealthy and pathological to overeat. And those are two separate arguments. Mm-hmm. They really are in the, in the way that he lays it out. But I'm actually more swayed by the latter argument, that it's unhealthy to overeat. And it's unhealthy not because food is toxic or ketones are good, but it's unhealthy 
because you're probably getting to guess where I'm going to go here. It's unhealthy because of what it does to your gut microbiota. So I, you know, <laughs> sure. the, the point sure. being is that our interaction with our gut microbiota is what makes certain eating patterns unhealthy. It's what explains why certain foods are unhealthy, etc. And it literally is a unhealthy state of being if you're consuming tons and tons of excess calories because essentially you're feeding competitor potentially harmful microbes in your guts. That's my that's my ah, take so on some it. of the opportunistic microbes that would lose a fight if uh, food were in finite supply don't have to worry about competition from the healthy microbes or what we think of as beneficial flora because there's so much food around that everybody can can colonize. Yes. <laughs> that that's definitely part of it. So part of it part of the part of it this It removes competition from the control system for the pathologic uh, microbiota. Yeah. It's it's it gets complicated and I guess where I might agree with the with this author's argument is that certain patterns of eating seem to be healthy and and unhealthy and it may very well be that our bodies have evolved to expect certain responses from the microbiome and at certain times and have have regular patterns of eating so there's a circadian pattern of eating and so if you eat for throughout a whole 24-hour period that's bad for us in fact i'm doing some some research along those lines exactly um but the pathology is not the ketones and the brain-derived neuropathic factor, et cetera. The pathology really is what we're doing to our to our uh, our gut microbiomes and how we're interacting with it. Most people get a sort of postprandial sedation. Um, it's always been my habit that if I'm going to do something particularly challenging, a job interview, uh, MCAT, board exams, things like that, I usually um, do fast a little bit going into those things. Not because I thought that fasting made me smarter, but because of that, because food tends to sedate me a little bit. But um, and you're probably less hungry. That you're, you're about effect, to do something which is maybe a slightly stressful or mm-hmm. has gotten you excited, and you have a lot of circulating catecholamines. It does tend to inhibit hunger. That may well be true as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the sedating effect, I think, is different than what he's describing. And it's long been known that, you know, when our tummies are full, we want to go take a nap somewhere. And that makes sense so we can focus on digesting for a while. I don't think that's the kind of reduced cognition that he means to be getting at in this paper. I don't think so either. One of the, but he does talk about inflammation from overeating. And one thing that does happen after you eat a large meal, particularly one that has uh, sugars and saturated fats, is that that causes a spike of lipopolysaccharide to appear in your blood. Which triggers inflammation. Which triggers inflammation and makes you sleepy. Do we want to talk about, for our listeners, why that might be a bad thing? To have tons of uh, E. coli bacterial products floating in your bloodstream? Well, I was thinking about the uh, inflammatory. So chronic low-grade inflammation, uh, which it's thought that there's some controversy around this, as there is in everything in nutrition, but there is a school of thought which I think has good support, that some foods create in us, or at least some eating patterns, I'll say, create in us a low-grade chronic systemic inflammation. Why would we care? Because it stimulates things like um, fat accumulation 
and uh, blood clotting. And so it makes us more prone to atherosclerotic plaque disease, that is the vascular disease that is the hallmark of aging, uh, one of the main hallmarks of aging, and also um, embolic phenomena like pulmonary emboli, blood clots in your lungs or in your brain, which causes stroke, or in your heart, which causes a heart attack, and so on. So there are real and specific very significant consequences of unneeded inflammation in the system. Right. And this, to me, is one of the important paradoxes that, that does require an explanation. And I commend Matson for making an effort to try to explain it in evolutionary context. And I think he gets part of the answer right. But the underlying question is, why is it that eating, just eating in general, why is it that it would generate inflammation? Why would it cause this low-grade right. inflammation that would predispose to blood clots and all the other badness? What is up with that? And so this was the topic that led me and some coworkers some seven years ago now to write about nutrient signaling and the, the nutrient signaling properties of different foods and why, they, why some tend to ramp, shove the needle towards inflammation and others tend to dial it way back. And the answer that we proposed in that paper was it had to do with the gut microbiome. Listeners and you, Coffee, know that this is a preoccupation of mine. But it, it, it does provide at least a decent explanation for why certain foods are pro-inflammatory and others are not. So, for instance, Coffee, I had, for breakfast this morning, I had a, a slow-cooking uh, oatmeal and that took like an hour to cook. <laughs> And I had uh, a bunch of uh, frozen you know, blackberries and blueberries and raspberries. Uh, now is my breakfast. Um, from the perspective of the microbiome, that's pretty much all good stuff. Uh, there, you're not, I'm not going to see a spike either in blood sugar or a spike in uh, lipopolysaccharide in my blood. Uh, I will uh, tend up those foods tend to promote metabolic health, maybe even the same or equivalent as fasting. And they do that because there is a high fiber content in the oatmeal that tends to feed beneficial microbes in the gut and the secondary plant compounds that are really rich in the berries. These are plant polyphenols. Flavonoids. Flavonoids. They actually inhibit the growth of harmful microbes. So essentially I'm doing, you know, you you can have a life hack in which you intermittently fast and that does good things for your brain and your cognition via some of the mechanisms that Matson lays out, or you can do a gut microbiome hack, and you can feed the good ones, kill off the bad ones. I'm simplifying here, folks, but that's what you can accomplish by having different uh, eating uh, so choices. So I think your thesis is that eating correctly is more important than eating sparingly, or as important. Uh, I think if I were to, if I were to kind of integrate the information from this article, from other ones about fasting and the microbiome, something called time-restricted feeding, which has been done in mice and in humans, where you can give a mouse essentially an equivalent number of calories, but if you restrict the, the time of day that, it, that it's able to eat, they don't gain weight, they don't become diabetic, they don't have this low-grade inflammation. I think you have to put all this information together. And there are time of day and circadian and even um, you know, time of week effects that we have on our health in terms of when we choose to eat and that a lot of what we're seeing has to do with direct effects on the microbiome and co-evolved effects involving our immune system, metabolism, and microbiome um, that have to do with when does our immune system expect things to happen in, in, our, in, our, in our guts. And our immune system has not evolved 
to expect our microbes to be continually fed a Krispy Kreme diet. Uh, by the way, we should mention, is it Dr. Matson? by the way? Yeah. Uh, we should mention Dr. Matson's. Uh, when he says intermittent fasting, he's talking about 8 to 16 hours a day, 1 to 7 times a week. So it could be as little as one afternoon you skip some, or, or, or one, one day you don't eat outside of the hours of 9 to 5 on Mondays. Or it could be as uh, elaborate as every day you don't eat outside of those hours. Or it could even be just as little as, I mean, let's face it, when we sleep at night, if we sleep for 8 hours, that's 8 hours of fasting, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we call breakfast break fast. So um, the range of what uh, intermittent fasting means within the context of this paper is pretty broad, but it is regular and frequent. Yeah. And I think both of us are convinced enough by some of the basic science data that he brings to bear and that others bring to bear that both of us think this is probably worth a try. I just have a hard time doing it. So this is by no means evidence. I want to really stress this is not evidence of anything. But I do feel actually quite good when I fast, and a lot of people do say that. I've heard that too. It makes sense. And maybe uh, just not giving in to urges that one has to engage in unhealthy behaviors, maybe that also just gives you a sense of control. It might be and, the sense of control and yeah. autonomy. It wouldn't surprise me if it right. is. So they, we have to sort out what, what's going on there. And bear in mind, you'd probably feel quite good if you snorted cocaine. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. Good Feeling good is not proof that something is good. So I really want to stress that point. But I agree. I've come across other people who have said the same thing that it does make them feel better. But hey, I want to give kind of a, an alternate hypothesis here. This is kind of going back to first principles and imagining a a sort of pre-modern evolutionary state that humans evolved in. Suppose that a hominid on the African savanna some 150,000 years ago came across an incredibly rich, palatable, delicious, amazing food that was extraordinary and had took took care of the caloric needs for the entire day. You know, the equivalent of a, a fast food meal. He Some found st- a clutch of bird's eggs. <laughs> or yeah, bird's eggs, uh, honey, for instance. In fact, the Hadza, yeah. the Hadza that were studied by the Herman Ponser. Um, or a fruiting group, tree. Or yeah. a nut tree. You could imagine, well, let's, let's take the, the honey example. That you, find, you find a honey bee colony and you get this massive infusion of calories. Uh-huh. So modern hunter-gatherers get this. This happened back in the day. There's a honey guide bird that seems to have evolved with humans that points humans in the way of, of finding honeybee colonies and then they share the spoils when they get oh, to it. Oh, how interesting. It's That's a really, amazing. really neat story. And it's it probably evolved over many thousands of years of coexistence of the uh, the <laughs> this honey guide bird and, and humans that, that feasted on, on honey. And so this, and this is a known thing about the Hadza hunter-gatherers is they will feast on honey and get a big chunk of their calories in the same way that we might go to the Cheesecake Factory and over, overdo it on, on cheesecake. Stay away from the honey badger. They won't share. But wouldn't it make sense that if there were these incredibly rich packets of energy, that it would be worth kind of ramping up one's cognition and cognitive skills so you could go out and find it again? Also, if I'm well-fed right now, yeah. it's not a waste of my time to plan how I'm going to get my next meal. You never know what's going to happen next week. Yeah. Right? So why would I get stupider after I'm well-fed? 
That's right. a great time to think, and tomorrow I'm going to do this to get some food. Right, if you're well-fed, you can say, this is a great, this, I've had a successful strategy, and plus I have plenty of extra calories, I can devote even extra energy towards brain function that would allow me to do this again tomorrow. And specifically, he talks about hippocampal uh, um, atrophy and dysfunction. Well, I want to remember how I got a bunch of food, because I probably won't want to do that again. Yeah. So, but this is, it's kind of like the argument about, um, about obesity, in that obese people tend to devote extra calories not towards brain activity or cognition and not towards uh, skeletal muscle activity and et cetera, but towards fat deposition and inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, if you didn't know any better, you'd think, well, there's plenty of extra calories. There's enough calories to go around and there's no constraint. Why not devote resources to, to all these things? So this gets at the evolutionary concept of there being trade-offs and there being life history trade-offs. That you, at any given moment, if you ta- have a packet of energy, you can devote it to certain functions. And that might be immune function and host defense, or it might be brain function and cognition, or it might be storing for a rainy day and putting it into uh, white adipose tissue, or it might be um, uh, behavioral uh, ex- energy expenditure towards finding new mates or whatever. But the idea is that because we've, we have evolved in a world of constraints, um, we tend to put energy in different buckets and not, not apply it towards everything all at once. Energy is the fungible currency of physiology, after all. Yeah, and it's a good way of thinking about things, that, that we have evolved with constraints and that we, there are these trade-offs that exist. But on the other hand, it does seem strange to think that we would kind of shortchange ourselves on really useful functions um, when, we have, when we have energy ex- excess. And it's a, it's me, a bit of a paradox. It made me think of something... Obese people, according to some studies that I've looked at, don't feel satiety at the same level as non-obese people. So when they free feed us, some of us are like Labradors. We'll just eat as much food as we can get. And some of us are more like Dobermans. We'll eat until we've had enough food and then we'll stop. And so I wonder if there's any correlation between this tendency not to experience satiety and decreased or even increased cognitive function, probably decreased. But if, So if the calorie deficit makes us smarter, then you would think, if anything, obese people... Well, if it, if it had to do with a lack of feeling of satiety, then obese people should be smarter than thin people because they don't feel satiety as readily. Maybe. Yeah, and again, I'm, I'm thinking back to your earlier comment about uh, cognitive impairment and... Maybe loss of self-control over over satiety, which we see in a disease called Prader-Willi disease. Right, right. Yeah, which has to do with um, you know, people, kids that have this disorder, will consume non-food items, garbage or and dog food. And in fact, food. some variant of Prader-Willi disease. Mm-hmm. So I used to take care of uh, disabled children, cognitively disabled children, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we saw just routinely, one of the one of the most common shared features of that population. Everyone's an individual, but one thing they tended to have in common was they just would never stop eating. They'd eat anything you gave them. But the rest of us do stop eating, and we can imagine that during the normal condition, that at some point we get cues from our microbes and from our brains and from our guts that it's time to stop eating. Mm-hmm. And that those cues and the, the regulatory mechanisms behind that are evolved traits. So how so. do we mesh this with Matson's thesis here? Um, well, I think that, again, just to put it into my own perspective, he is highlighting a particular harm of overeating. He's 
he's showing that people who overeat and are sedentary and who are obese tend to show some neurocognitive deficits. And again, these are association studies. They're not randomized controlled trials. So we have that. But the evidence is there. And it does suggest that something is going on uh, with regard to uh, there being a cost to certain behavioral lifestyles and a cost to eating. I think that even the folks that do come at this question from an evolutionary perspective, we don't think about the cost of eating so much. Like for those kids you're talking about, there's definitely a cost mm -hmm. to not stopping eating. Mm -hmm. There's a problem involved in that. And you know, if you're if you're eating, you're not doing something else. Um, and if you're overfeeding your microbes, you you could be not doing that. So there, everything comes with a cost and a trade-off. And so I, I would just maybe one of my concluding thoughts here is that there is a cost to eating. It does have to do with our co-evolved microbes. And that, that explains a great deal of what's going on. It explains why we get lipopolysaccharide after we eat. It explains why we tend to accumulate fat around our guts, around our microbiomes, where it can actually do something useful, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. Um, but that, that, to me, is kind of the linchpin, is that, one, there is a cost to eating. Two, it has to do with the microbiome. Three, it affects your brain. So am I going to buy in and, and, to, and do some of this intermittent fasting? Yeah. I'm going to think about it and push the needle in that direction. It's easy to, for me to believe that chronic overeating ultimately does impair brain function. Mm -hmm. But whether episodes of overeating create episodes of decreased brain function, I'm still struggling a bit with. Uh, I will say, though, if we're winding down at this point, Dr. Matson, thank you for a really interesting paper that has given me just a ton to think about. I really don't know what I'm going to wind up believing in a few months, but I am. I found it fascinating. I liked the way that you laid it out and organized it. Uh, I will say that there were times when I felt you were building a case more than exploring a data, a, a set of facts. But uh, I yep. really love this paper. Thank you for writing it, and thank you for challenging us in this way. Yeah. So I agree. It's a it's a bit of an extraordinary claim. Uh, there is some cherry picking of data. There is some conflating of things like obesity and overeating, uh, fasting yeah. and exercise that doesn't quite get to the question that mm -hmm. I think that he wanted to get to with this article. But I agree. And I think wouldn't it be wonderful if there really was a intellectual and a scholarly place where we could debate these things? In other words, you could submit a kind of a, a rebuttal to this argument and have, a, have a, an actual good back and forth. That doesn't really exist you it mean like interesting me. conversations? Like interesting conversations. Oh, we were supposed to talk about that. Yeah. Let's, uh, so, let's, let's end on that. So Coffee has this, this um, and his wife, Cheryl, yep. have put together a, a novel way of both exploring ideas and getting them out in the world. Why don't you talk about that? So our vision is TED Talks that are interactive. Instead of people coming to hear a lecture by a content expert, they come to have a discussion with a content expert where they can ask the questions they're interested in. Content experts, you might want to contact us because this is a great way to start a lecture circuit. You can find out what people want to hear more about and what kinds of questions they would have. Um, this is aimed at reasonably educated non-experts, lay people with, with active intellects, basically. And you can learn more about us at www.intellectualsofamerica.com. 
interestingconversationsnm.com, and we would love to see more of you uh, at our next meetings. Because this is still a very early process, um, your input in helping us to shape this into all that it can be is extremely important. So picture this, folks. This is like an interactive TED Talk where the audience is as engaged and as important to the conversation and shaping the conversation as the expert. And I've had the great pleasure of taking part in one of these conversations, and I found it to be tremendously exciting and uh, engaging. Uh, coffee is onto something here. Coffee and, and Cheryl both onto something here. Interesting conversations. Nm. dot com. Look at it. Is it dot com? Dot com. Yeah. Look it up. Uh, and while you're at it, check out my blog, evolutionmedicine.com. That's one word, evolutionmedicine.com. And I haven't asked people to do this thus far, but I know some people have left reviews on uh, on their on your favorite podcast site. Uh, but get on to uh, Whatever you listen to, SoundCloud, or if you're on iTunes, please leave us a rating. Tell us what you think about this, and don't hesitate to get in touch with me with additional feedback. Five stars, totally. That's what we'd like. But, you know, we'll take what we can get. And with that, I think uh, we'll, we'll sign off. We've been at this for a little bit over an hour. And, yeah, join me and Coffee again for another uh, conversation about evolution in medicine or... Join Coffee and Cheryl at one of their interesting conversations. Thanks so much, Joe. And thank you.